0: Would you pray with me? God and Father, I just come before you as we come to your word. Lord, I pray that you might speak through it to us, that both the words that you spoke through Paul here in Romans and that your Holy Spirit working in our heart would be teaching us to know and love you more. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have been preaching through the book of Romans now since January. Um, I know a couple of you have asked, because we've slowed down a lot in Romans 8, and we will pick up a little bit. Um, we won't be doing two and three first chunks all the way through the rest of the book. Um, although, I think I pointed out at the beginning that Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, spent 13 years preaching through Romans, and he died at the end of that, and he was only in chapter 14. So, <laughs> by perspective, right? Um, but... But I say that in part because as we come to a passage like this one, I feel like parts of this passage are familiar to us, and parts of this passage are very much challenging. And let's start with the familiar part, right? I almost guarantee you, even if you're not a church person, that you have heard somewhere some reference to the first of these three verses we read, to Romans 8, 20 and 8. It's everywhere. You might not know Adam from Abraham and think the prophets are just what like, companies put on their quarterly reports, but you've probably heard Romans 8.28, God works all things for good for those who love him, right? You've seen it somewhere on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a billboard. Someone has said it to you when you're struggling with something, and it's one of those verses like, I can do all things through Christ or be strong and courageous that I feel like gets quoted all the time that many Christians love to recite and are happy to share with those who are struggling. And I point that out for two reasons. First, um, just generally, one of the hard things about preaching a verse like this is that it feels so familiar to us that we think we've heard it all before and got it figured out. And um, we're like, oh yeah, I've got that, let's move on. But doubly, because when a verse is as popular as this one, Like, if I I could offer, like, Eric's rule of Christian merchandising, any Bible verse, if you feel comfortable putting it on a collectible plate or a mouse pad, you probably haven't really wrestled with what it said. Um, That God gives us this wonderful, complicated, messy thing in Scripture, and sucking out this one little slice of it and putting it on a bumper sticker almost always leaves you with the wrong impression. It robs it of its power and makes it feel like we know what it's saying when we don't. The truth is, the way that a lot of us hear that verse and have even maybe quoted that verse, I think, is misleading. People tend to say, oh, God works all things for good, which isn't even quite what the verse says, which we'll get to, but they say it like God works all things for good, and they mean like, like, cheer up, you Eeyore, you know, I mean, <laughs> things are gonna get better. The sun'll come up tomorrow. I mean, that's that's the way they use this verse. And that doesn't actually make any sense given what Paul has been saying just before that. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that Paul's been discussing, um, in many ways, our suffering and the way we ache under our suffering, starting in verse 18. Here's his image from a couple of verses ago. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right? Which we, Like we said then, it means like it's been going through something as painful as labor um, right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. He says that we are groaning in a pain as bad as labor and you don't tell a woman in the midst of labor, oh, just cheer up, you Eeyore, right? (laughs) That's a bad idea. Paul in this verse is saying something I think both more beautiful but also more challenging than we realize. But to get there... And uh, to try to process what I think verse 28 means, we actually need to start with verses 29 and 30. If you notice at the beginning of verse 29, it starts with the word for, right? Which means because. And so Paul is giving the reason for what he's saying. And so to understand it, we're going to need to start there. So let's look at verse 29. Paul starts by saying, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And there are some unfamiliar words there, so we're going to just walk through them. First, God foreknew. He foreknew us, which means he knew us beforehand. Um, And here's the thing about that word. There's kind of two ways I think we can hear that word. Um, Our natural instinct is to hear it as if it's saying that God sort of knew us like he knew information, right? God knew, he was like aware of our existence beforehand or aware of some things about us or something. But when the Bible talks about God knowing us, it almost also means knowing not in that sense, but in the sense of knowing personally and in the sense of knowing with intention, so, for example, in Jeremiah 1.5, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So that's personal knowing, right? God knows the prophet Jeremiah personally, and he knows him with intention, with purpose. He was calling him to be a prophet to the nations. In fact, sometimes that intention is exactly what, what the word know means. So if you look like in Genesis 18, God is talking about Abraham, who he called out as this person from among all of the people in the world, and he says, for I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, and that word that the NIV translates chosen is just the word to know, right? It's not, I mean, it's the Hebrew word for know. God's knowing Abraham is about him choosing and calling out Abraham. That's how Paul also uses the word, relationally and with intention. So like in Galatians 4, Paul says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? So Paul says, you know God, right? And he doesn't mean information. He doesn't mean like you know that God exists. He means that you've entered into this loving personal relationship. And then he has to step back and say, but wait, but what I mean by that really is that you were known by God, that God knew you first, and that's somehow what created that knowledge. I know some of you might be wondering why we're digging into that word, but... um, That's going to become clear in a minute because of the way it ties into the next word. But to summarize that, when we say God foreknew, we mean that God knew us personally and with intention before the foundation of the world. And then that connects to the second word that Paul uses, God predestined us. God predestined us. Some of us don't know what that word means, and so we're kind of left scratching our heads, and some of us do know what that word means, and so you're probably feeling nervous And this is a hard and debated topic. I want to say this before we get into this second word. But um, one of the things about preaching through Bible books is that it's in our text for this morning, so we're going to talk about it. First, let me just define what the word means, and then we'll discuss it, okay? Predestined means decided beforehand, determined in advance. So in the case of the Bible, it usually means determined before creation, determined back at the beginning of things because God doesn't exist within time. So those God foreknew, he decided beforehand that they would be conformed to the image of his son. So that's what the verse says. So what does that mean? First, let me just give us some other Bible verses. This is going to be something that, for some of us, I know, because we wrestle with it, it's always important not to just talk about, like, one verse and one word. So here's a few other Bible verses that deal with the same topic. So Paul in Ephesians 1, for example. Even as God chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world— that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, Paul says, and in love he determined beforehand um, our adoption, and he did it according to the purpose of his will, which is Paul's way of saying just because he decided to, not for some other reason. Again, a little later in that same chapter, he says, in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance— having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, we were predestined, Paul says, and he really stresses it's just because of God's decision. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Is saying, essentially, he did it because he decided to based on the decision of him who works out everything as he decides. Um... Jesus talks the same way, too. He doesn't use the word predestined, um, but he does talk a lot about God's choice and God's drawing of people. So, for instance, from John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that fruit should abide. Or from John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or Luke, in the book of Acts, when he, he recounts Paul preaching this sermon, and then almost offhandedly, he says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as it were appointed by God to eternal life believed. And we could look at more verses. There's actually a bunch from the Old Testament and some more from Paul and from Revelation. Let's talk about that means, all right? So first of all, like we said, this is an issue where Christians disagree. And so we should be aware of that and gracious about it as we disagree. But it's important when we recognize that Christians disagree that we not let that then say, well, we shouldn't think about it, right? God put all of those verses in the Bible, and we need to do our best to try to figure out what to make of them. So let me suggest, basically, there's three different ways that people understand all of those verses I just read, okay? The first option is that you have is to say that when it talks about being predestined and chosen, that means chosen beforehand, particularly as individuals, but that the foreknew, right, in our verse, the new beforehand means something like foreknew whether if those individuals were left to themselves they would choose God or not, right? Or like that foreknew whether um, based on without sin, if they would have faith in God, then that's, that's the reason that God chose them. Um, and that actually, that sounds helpful in some ways because it sounds like it removes this tension we feel with the idea of God choosing to save certain people. Um, but it does have some issues. First of all, like we said, new almost certainly doesn't mean just knew some information about somebody, right? It's used personally and often in terms of God choosing and calling people. It also doesn't fit with the stress that some of those verses we just read puts on God's choice, when Paul says that God predestines people according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that probably just isn't how you'd talk if what you were trying to say was he predestines them according to some decision that they're going to make. And that idea actually gets really dangerous, which is why I personally find it um, problematic. Because if you think about what that's saying, that's saying that God looks down the halls of history and says, who am I going to save? right? Who am I going to choose to save? Well, here is this nice person who's going to choose to have faith in me, and I will save them. And here's this other person, and they're not, and so I'm not going to save them, right? And that actually starts getting problematic because that means that God chose to save you because you deserve it, right? That you did something, made some choice, and that's what makes the difference, that it rests in you. And that breeds a dangerous pride and isn't biblical, the scripture insists that it's nothing in us that, that's the reason that God chose to save us. So I don't think that option works, but you can think about that, because maybe I'm wrong. Here's option two, right? Like the first option, it's, um, it's trying to kind of like shift what it seems to be saying, but it focuses on the word predestined, and it would say that, yeah, God foreknew and predestined certain people for salvation, but it's talking about just people as a group, not individually. That God is choosing to save Christians, right, to save the church, but he isn't determining anything about individuals in that group. Now that sounds interesting, and there are some verses in the Bible that talk about God choosing a people as a group, especially in the Old Testament when we read about God's choice of Israel. But it just doesn't fit with the language of the verses that we just quoted. When the book of Acts says that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, that's not just talking about some group. That's talking about individuals. When Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, again, that sounds like it's talking about individuals. Plus, it's really hard to understand how you choose a group without choosing the individuals in it. I can't choose to love my family, but not that one uncle, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, like, we have a sense that by choosing a group, you almost always are also connected with the individuals in it. So if neither of those options work, what do we do? Well, it seems to me, and this is the third way you could read those texts, is that um, you take those verses at face value. So God chose people who he would save, from before the beginning of time and he put in place his plan to save them and um, so he chooses who he will save and then he predestines them for salvation and then as we'll get to in a minute he works out that salvation so that's a hard idea right and I know it is so before we talk about it because in just a minute I'm going to suggest there's actually something good about it let me just say a few things because I feel like that idea raises all kinds of questions for us right So first of all, we might ask, if that's true, why do I have to become a Christian or do anything? Why can't I just do what I want if God chose me? That idea that God chose to save certain people from before the foundation of the world um, doesn't say anything about what I'm called to do. It isn't saying that repentance and faith aren't necessary for salvation because they are, right? And that's because in scripture whenever we read about God controlling things, God is sovereign over the ends and the means. He predestines the ends and the means. So he if he predestined me to marry my wife, which is actually kind of biblical this idea that God is working out that plan, that doesn't change the fact that I had to ask her out on dates and pop the question and somehow convince her to marry me, right? Like those were all a part of that. He had predestined the ends and the means. And if God predestines people for salvation, that doesn't change the idea that they would also have to have faith and repent and all of that. Instead, it simply says that those things are a result of something that God did beforehand. So that idea of predestination doesn't mean that we don't have to believe in and choose God. And then there's another set of questions. We might say, well, where, why like share the gospel or be about God's mission then? Why evangelize? But here's the thing, and this is important for more than just this question. Even if I'm right about what I think the Bible says, we cannot know who God has predestined in this way. That's one of the basic assumptions. What we're talking about here is something that's up there in God's invisible will, right? And not something that I have access to. So when I look around the world, I have no idea what God has chosen in this way. Um, And so that means that... um, that I'm supposed to still be about his work. I mean, look, like, God has predestined the day I die. Whatever you think about this verse, like, that is a clear thing that Scripture teaches. But that doesn't mean that I should, you know, not wear a seatbelt and eat whatever I want and never exercise, right? We all recognize that God is in control, but that I, not knowing those things, also need to to seek to, you know, to, to live out the way that he's called me to do. The same thing is true in proclaiming the gospel. Instead, though, there's something freeing about that, I think. It means it's Jesus' picture of the sower, right? My job is to go into the world and to sow the seed. And then God's job is to bring the increase. Really, that's the foundation of true evangelism. Because if this isn't true, if God isn't at work drawing people and changing people, then sharing your faith depends on you. It depends on you doing it clearly enough and eloquently enough and that is a terrifying idea, right? That, the, the, that the, the, the eternal destiny of people rests on me. It makes many of us despair and never talk about Jesus and it makes a smaller group of us into total jerks trying to kind of badger and wheedle people into belief. But evangelism in scripture always means that you share the love and hope of the gospel and leave the fruit to God. That's what lets me get up in the pulpit every Sunday, if I'm honest with you guys. If this thing depended on me and my abilities, then we are all doomed, right? I cannot change human hearts, but I do my best to to say what Scripture says and then leave the work up to God. So that's a couple of questions. And I know there's one more set of questions, and this is the hardest one, right? That's the why question. Why does God do this, and why does he choose some people? And seemingly not choose other people. And how is that fair? And all of those questions. And while I'm tempted to kind of just say a few words about that, I feel kind of terrible doing this, but I'm going to ask you to wait if that's your set of questions. Not because there isn't an answer or because it isn't important, but because Paul spends a big chunk of Romans 9 actually trying to answer that specific question. And I'll be honest with you guys. If you think this is hard as an idea right here in Romans 8, man... (laughs) it's way harder next chapter, okay? Um, And so I feel like it's probably best to save that set of questions to get there. But that said, let me just offer two thoughts about that idea, okay? First, like I said, this is an idea that Christians disagree about, and I'd welcome conversation about it. But one of the basic assumptions that I have as a Christian is that we have to always operate within what the Bible says. All of those verses I quoted and a bunch of other ones, whatever we decide, it has to make sense of all of those verses. And not just make sense, like, explain them away. I feel like there's this, this thing that I'm tempted to do when I come to hard text that's just like, let me let me explain to you why Paul isn't saying what he says, right? Like, and, and, but to really deal with them, right? Just speaking personally, I did not like this idea when I first encountered it. And there are some things that I've learned to love about it, and we'll get there in just a minute, but I was really resistant to it in that moment. But, um, but the more I kind of just rammed my head against the Bible repeatedly, the more I felt like, you know, this is probably something that I have to wrestle with and believe, even though I don't know that I like it. But that said, there is also something that I feel like I have come to appreciate um, about this idea. And um, this idea that God chooses and works and calls and draws people to himself. And here's what it is. It's, um, if you've ever watched a chick flick, right, like a romantic comedy or something, there is this scene, and you'll probably know what I'm talking about as soon as I say it, but it's, it's the airport scene at the end of the movie. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? that? That there is this scene, you know, it's the point in the movie where they've fallen in love and then things went wrong, and now the main character is, you know, is, is, they, they're, they're, they're being left, right? They, um... Their their person that they love is like flying away on a jet plane to some other job or some other life. Or maybe it's not literally an airport. Maybe they're about to go get married, right, to the wrong person or whatever. Um, And the main character is like sitting at a bar or at their father's house or with that one friend who's kind of quirky but has really good advice. And whatever it is, um, there's this moment where the bartender or their dad or their friend looks at them and just says like, are you going to let this person get away? Um, And they have this moment of insight and they say No. And then what happens, right? <laughs> you know this. It's, it's the scene where they're running across the airport, right? Where they're, where they're bursting into the wedding and saying, I object. It's that moment in chick flick movies. That scene, right? What makes that scene work, what makes it so powerful and makes it resonate so much with us is this simple realization that if you love someone, if you love something, you chase after it. Loving something means... That you chase after it. See, the idea that God just leaves salvation up to us, that makes for an easier God, in a sense, right? It makes me feel a lot more comfortable with, um, you know, with, with God. But it also is a terrible love story. <laughs> the idea that God sort of just says, like, you know, well, I've done this stuff in Jesus. I hope some people get saved. As I sit up here in heaven, right? You know, waiting, waiting for them. I mean, you know, I hope they get their act together. That's the guy, you know, sitting, sitting at the bar and just being like, you know, well, you know, we'll see if they come back. Pour me another drink. And then the credits roll, right? That's a terrible love story. For all the questions that it raises, the idea that God chooses and chases after us, it's saying that God in his love is chasing you. That from before you were born until after you died, God is chasing after you in his love, not just waiting at the bar, that he's, he's running across the airport after you. And while that doesn't answer all of the hard questions, and like we said, we're going to talk about some of those really hard ones in a couple weeks, I think that's an image of God that we need. All right. We spent a lot of time there because that's a hard idea from our text. But r- the point of this, remember, is leading us to understand Verse 28. So let's get back to the text. It says, those God foreknew, he predestined. And then we're going to come back to the end of verse 29. But if you go on to 30, those God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That God called them first. And in scripture, that means two things at once. It means the sort of outward call and the sort of inward call. God called us outwardly, and that means from other people or from hearing the Bible, right? He calls us through the gospel to faith. And he calls us inwardly, that God works in our hearts to draw us to faith as well. That as we hear it, something about us is piqued and and moved to believe. So we're called, and then we are justified, he says. And that word we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's come up a lot in Romans, but it means that we're given right standing with God. That Jesus paid for our sins. We were at war with God, but by the blood of the cross, now we are at peace because God made peace. We're justified, and those who are justified are also glorified. Glorification is about the end of the story. It's what we talked about two weeks ago. Jesus returns and we're resurrected in immortal bodies, free from sin and the curse. That's glorification. And here's the thing to notice about those ideas, right? The reason that this works is Paul puts them in a chain, and it's a chain that includes the same people from the start to the finish. Do you see that? That those God foreknew, he also predestined. Those God predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he ultimately will glorify. And that's the first part of what helps us make sense of verse 28. So if we look at verse 28, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We often skip the end of that verse, but Paul says that God does this for those who have been called according to his purpose. That is Paul's way of summarizing everything that we just said. God chose to save you and he called you because of that purpose, and so those called according to God's purpose are those who are all of the things that he just listed, right? Foreknown and predestined and justified and glorified. And so then if you look at the beginning of the verse, and he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Well, first notice that it does not say that God makes everything good, right? That's how many people use the verse, but it's not saying that. Instead, Paul says that God is working good in all things. Those things might be bad, and Paul's not denying that. The world in in the things around us might be at work for our destruction, and the devil might be at work for our destruction, but God At the same time, is it work for our good? And the certainty we have of that is the list of things that Paul says in those next two verses. We can trust that God is at work for our good because from start to finish in God's story, he has been about loving and saving us. That before, the, before creation even happened, right? Before there was even space or time, God had willed and loved to save you. And at the end of things, when eternity stretches on unimaginably and we live in glorified bodies in a glorified world, God is loving and saving and has chosen us. And if that's true, then that can give us confidence that everything in between is also a time when God is with us and is at work for our good. Even in the hard stuff, God is still at work for our good, even as life brings all sorts of hard and terrible things our way. Not that the things aren't bad, but that even in them, this God who will never let us go is working our good. But that can still leave us with some questions, and we can still wonder, how does that work? And how can good be worked in this? Because, like, part of the answer is that we don't understand God's work. But the other part is that we also misunderstand what good means in this verse. We need to ask the question, what is good? So if you look at verse 29 again, um, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And like I said, we skipped the second half of that verse, remember, when we walked through it before. But it says that we, um, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is at work doing. That is the end goal of God's work in the world. And that's describing something that ultimately happens at our glorification. Our resurrection, in a sense, is becoming, it's pictured in scripture, as becoming like Jesus is, free from sin and immortal and glowing with the glory of God. Um, but that's also describing something that is true of us right now, or becoming more true of us right now in this age. That God is at work to make us more like Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That word means a little Jesus, a little Christ. Jesus is the direction that God's shaping us right now. But here's the thing about that. If you look back at verse 28 again, it says that we are called according to God's purpose— and verse 29 told us what that purpose is. That purpose is to grow us to be more like Jesus. And then that rolls back to define what we mean by good. So good in verse 28 means being conformed to the image of Christ. See, I think that's where we go wrong. We tell people that God is working for their good, and what we mean is that God is working for their comfort. God is working to make things A-OK and hunky-dory in life, right? Right? But what Paul is saying is that God is working to make us more like Jesus. And the question I'm left reflecting on as I sat in this text is how much do I actually want that? (laughs) I mean, that's what I'm called to desire as a Christian, right? I'm called to long for transformation. Not just that my circumstances would be a little nicer, but that I would be made more like Christ and show his love and show his holiness and show this true, deep, beautiful humanity to the world. And the truth is, I really often don't desire that very much. And I know that because you can measure my desire. You can measure desire in what you're willing to see as worth it. For, um, for something, right? Like, like my kids say they want to learn to play the piano. And, that, and I say, oh great, you know, let's, let's sit down and have a piano lesson. And it's like, no, 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 we want to go play outside, right? Okay, well you need to practice. Well, no, no, we don't want to do that, right? And the answer is obviously that you're saying you, you, know, you desire to learn to play the piano. But not very much. And the same thing I think can be true of us when it comes to becoming like Jesus. If we say we want that... But, um, but we aren't willing to see that as particularly good, right? If we aren't willing to look at that and say that that's something that, that I'm longing for in a way that, that changes how we look at life, then that should make us stop and ask if that's the thing that we really want. Now stop, because I say that and I know that some of us, We feel guilty when we hear that. I feel guilty when we hear that. And the answer to that is not to just beat yourself up, right? The answer to that is to to pray and seek to have your desires be changed. I mean, that's how you get that's how you learn to play the piano, right? You learn to want to play it more. Um, The more you want it, then the more worth you give to it, and the more you're willing to pursue it. And the same is true of being like Jesus. We need to train ourselves to recognize the all-surpassing worth of knowing him and reflect on the beauty of what he calls us to. And as we do that, we can start to be encouraged by the truth that Paul tells us here, which is that God is at work, no matter what happens, to make us more like Christ. But also don't hear what I'm not saying in that. I'm not saying that we should look at the struggles of life and say, hey, I don't mind. Right? It's all good. I don't care about the hard things that happened because, you know, I'm just getting to be more like Jesus. What I am saying is that the more we care about becoming like Jesus, the more we care about glorifying God, and the more we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then the more capable we are to handle suffering. Not because it isn't terrible, but because we have a hope ultimately set in something that can endure it, Right? I mean, that's the problem with setting your hope on your circumstances or something in this life is it is an unsure foundation because it can be taken away from you. I mean, it can, right? We all know that. In our dark moments, we're all terrified of that fact. But if our ultimate hope is in Jesus and the way that God is making us more like him and the way that he will ultimately unite us to him in glory, that is a hope that the world cannot touch. God doesn't promise that those hard things are just going to disappear. And he doesn't promise that everything's going to be hunky-dory. But he does promise us that he is at work in the world to make us more like Jesus. To love us and draw us ultimately into union with him. And the more that is something that we hunger for and long for, the more there is something certain that we can have hope in. So let's come back to where we started then, right? With those familiar words... And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So what does that actually mean? Well, it means first that God is at work in all things. Not that he makes those things good, many of them are still evil, but that he uses and works through all of them for a good purpose in us. And we know this because God has called us for that purpose. That before the foundation of the world, God had called and loved and sought after us and planned our salvation, and that He is working it out now, and He will work it out in in the future until we are united with Him in glory. And so we know that that includes the moment that you and I are in right now today. As Paul puts it elsewhere in his letter to the Philippians He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that good work God is doing, that purpose that he has, is to make us more like Christ, to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And I don't know, I think about that, and that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you put on like a baby onesie or a mouse pad. That God is at work in you, no matter what happens, how good or how dark, God is working to transform each of us into something holy and beautiful. It's not something you sell merchandise with, but that's the kind of promise that I think can actually sustain us. That's something that we can actually rest in and have hope in, if our hope is in Christ. Because God will accomplish that thing that he set out to do. Would you pray with me? Father, there's there's some hard things.